Douglas Wilk is the author of the New York Times bestseller, All of the Marvels, and the Eisner Award-winning reading comics, and the host of the podcast, Voice of Latveria. A National Arts Journalism Program Fellow, Wolk has written about comic books, graphic novels, pop music, and technology for the New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, The Believer, Slate, and Pitchfork. He has lectured and moderated panels at Comic-Con International, the Experience Music Project Pop Conference, and other events. Douglas Wool, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Good to be here. And so I just, I guess the first question is, you know, why the Marvelverse? You know, what got you down this path and this really uh, Olympian uh, journey of reading and writing about it? Well, it kind of started with my son when he was about 10 years old. Uh, he had always read comics with me, but not superhero comics. You know, superhero comics, that's what my dad likes, right? And then when he was about 10, uh, he suddenly realized, oh, this is a complicated system. I like complicated systems. Okay, dad, you know, I think I'd like to read all the Marvel comics in continuity order, not the order they were published, the order the events happened to the characters. I was like, all right, this is, this is going to last a week. It'll be a nice week we have together. And then three months later, he'd read like eight years worth of comics and was still going. And you know, he didn't want to read everything anymore. He'd just jump forward and jump around and like do what you're supposed to do as a reader, which is just read the stuff that interests you. And it was around then that I started thinking, but what would it look like if I did read all of these? If I read this half million page long story that's been going on for 60 years as a story, as one story, and what, what would that look like? That sounds like a book to me, I said, rubbing my hands together like a Bond villain. And uh, then six years later, here we are. <laughs> it's quite it's quite a feat. I mean, I I don't know. I think, you, you you know, you discuss like where to begin and you say that you, you know, let your curiosity roam. But, you know, what was your kind of organizing principle going into it and how did that adapt as you went along? Well, the organizing principle for reading was no principle at all. I didn't, I decided that I was not going to read in any kind of order. I was going to graze. I was going to read whatever I felt like reading on any given morning or afternoon or evening. So, you know, I might read a chunk of Iron Man, or I might read some Patsy Walker, or I might read some comics drawn by you know, somebody I thought was really interesting, or that involved a character I thought was interesting, or a bunch of old romance comics, just whatever I felt like, just so I would not get mired down in the, oh no, I have however many issues I have to read of this terrible thing. And that worked pretty well until right about the end of the process, I had a spreadsheet. Uh, where I listed all the comics I was going to read. And I crossed things off as I read it. And as I got near the end, I realized there were a few patches that I was neglecting and putting off and was going to have to deal with at some point, which is how I ended up locking myself into an apartment for 11 days with a case of protein drinks and 30 years worth of Punisher comics. Yeah, well, it, it is a training and I, I understand. And so you know, also I'm wondering how do you read, like even within a comic uh, text that, like I find, I'm a visual artist, but I also write. So I sometimes, I, I will, when it's comics, I'll, I'll look at the images first, but I don't know how you do it. You know, I've been reading comics long enough that I kind of 
deal with text and images simultaneously. Like I just kind of take it all in at once. That is not the way. That is not the one way of doing it. They're to be read and looked at and enjoyed however however works for you. Comics, what do you think, what does it make you reflect upon our society and what we need in terms of you know, going to these stories that we don't get in in the real world? The writer Grant Morrison wrote a book called Super Gods has a very interesting thesis that superheroes are not actually a genre. They're a thing that you can add to any, any genre of storytelling to make it more interesting. Okay, I'm not sure I totally agree with that, but it's a real, it's a real interesting thought. Superhero comics, especially, always reflect the cultural moment around them because they're produced in it by just a few people who are working on a deadline, trying to make something that is meaningful to them. And so it's not always easy to see how comics of a given moment reflect the moment that we are in now. But if you look at comics from 10 years ago or 15 or 20 or 40 years ago, it's obvious. And if you look at comics that are coming out right now, you're like, oh no, that's that. They didn't really necessarily say anything about our society right now. I mean, they're just, you know, how it's done right now. If you look at them 20 years from now, I guarantee you're going to say that comic is so 2022. Oh, those poor people. Oh. Oh, <laughs> but if you look at the history of this 60 year long Marvel story, which it has some continuity to it because it's been the same characters in the same setting throughout. It can any new part can refer to any old part of the story. And you see so much about how things change. If you look at 60 years of Iron Man stories, that is 60 years of stories about how America feels about the military industrial complex and the relationship of the military to manufacturing and to industry. And that is literally who Tony Stark is. He is an arms manufacturer. And if you look at the stories from the early 60s, it's rah, rah, go get your factory going so we can defeat the communists. If you look at the late 60s, it's we're not so sure about this anymore. If you look at stories from the early 70s, suddenly there are student protesters showing up outside the Stark International plant. If you look at stories from the 80s, it's corporatization of the entire military industrial structure. And like, there's, there's a story that I was reading a couple of weeks ago, again, that is, it's basically a Karen Silkwood story. It is a story about a whistleblower who gets it in the neck. And, you know, Iron Man and the other corporate res representative at the end of the story are like, well, you know, it's tragic the way she went, but you know, she might have had a little bit of a point there. It makes you think, doesn't it? If you look at Iron Man stories from about 2005, suddenly there's drone technology everywhere. If you look at stories from the 2010s, the kind of conflict that's going on is much less about building physical machines than it is about surveillance technology and information technology. That's what military technology has become. And that it's throughout the story. It's all there. It's all there in every comic like that. I just picked one as an example, but there's some aspect of culture that is being addressed in the story because that's what makes it a story that makes that's what makes it the kind of thing that we care about. And looking at a story that's been going on for this long, you see so much. It really helps us examine, I think, in this larger than life way. I mean, then and then our life starts to resemble it more and more. And when I think about with the Iron Man or other superheroes, is I think that, you know, when it started we've kind of got you know transhumanism we've kind of moved so much closer to our machines and some will like oh gosh try to pry a cell phone out of their hand <laughs> they won't so it's it's interesting to think about that 
how the conversation has become has developed and become more sophisticated. And I guess it is a way of introducing some of these new ideas to a general public and, and also to, to younger people who kind of then get really excited about them. Yeah, I mean, to younger people and also to older people, there is this idea that superhero comics are things made for kids, which has never stopped being true, but it has also not been exclusively true for a really long time. Like that's not the only people who are reading this by a long shot. And there was a time when superhero comics were made for you know, 10 year olds, 12 year olds, whatever. And then their audience kind of grew up with them. And you hear people sometimes say like, oh, there's no comics for kids. And they oh, sure there are comics for kids. There's a ton of comics for kids, but the main line of superhero comics, like I'm 52, there's some stuff that is aimed straight at me. Yeah, and I think that because you say that there's these multiple ways to to read them, or if you want it, if you can immerse yourself, I'm um, you know the 27,000 <laughs> volumes that, uh, uh, but there's so it, you when you we want to take in the whole story, which I think to just conceive of that i i can't even imagine and then there's all these meta things going on as well so it's quite sophisticated reading it's almost like you know biblical commentary and i don't recommend reading all of them like i i read all these comics so you don't have to uh they were never supposed to all be read by anyone they were never supposed to be read from the beginning all the way through that's not what they're designed for they are designed for pleasure and fun and entertainment and you find the ones that you like and you read those and if there's ones you don't care about don't read them don't waste your time with them <laughs> there are lots of different ways of looking at them there are lots of different things to read them for i am a narrative kind of person so i read them for narrative there are people who look at these things specifically for costume design for clothing design. Like that is the thing they care about. That is the thing that they are passionate about. Cosplay is a way of responding to comics that is not my way at all. And I'm fascinated by it because it is a completely different way of perceiving these wonderful, pleasurable, entertaining things. Yes. And also, um, you know, speak, you were speaking about film and I was mm -hmm. wondering how, I mean, because of, I, it's kind of so reduced. I mean, wh how, what do you enjoy about their exploration on film and what do you really love about the, the comic universe you can hold in your hand? It's a really good question. So I think there's this mistaken idea that every little comic book wants to be a movie when it grows up. They're not. They're very, very, very different kinds of media. And one of the biggest difference is that movies tell you or purport to tell you that what you're seeing is what you would have seen if your eye had been in the right place at the right time. Like they're optical. Comics are drawn. They are drawn by a particular person. You are seeing the world interpreted by a particular person's eye and hand. They're produced on a very, very small creative scale. To make a mainstream comic, you need just a few people art comics, even fewer people. And there's lots of comics that are made by one person who does everything. But even in the mainstream world, where things are divided up, you know, writer, penciler, inker, letterer, colorist, that's still not a lot of people compared to the number of people it takes to make even the smallest scale movie. Uh, so they can very, very directly reflect 
the ideas and the worldview and the conception and the artistry of a very, very few people at once. Now, what's interesting is like, obviously you've seen a lot of superhero movies and a lot of Marvel movies in the last 14 years. Um, they are visual stories. They are about characters who are interesting to look at and do really interesting looking things. I think one of the brilliant things about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that it feels no need to be faithful to the comics at all. It treats it as the comics as a gigantic market full of ingredients that they can use or not use as they please, because their job is not being, quote, faithful to comics or adapting the comics. It's about using that material to make something that works as a movie or works as TV, which is great. And I love that. And some of those movies are fantastic. Some of the TV shows are great. I love WandaVision. WandaVision is 100% about being a TV show. It is not something you could do as a comic. The comics are not something you could do as a movie. They're not trying. They are leaning into their particular medium. And that's a great thing. Yes. And in your readings in all of the marbles, did you find you, there is this overriding story and um, but did you, you find that there was something missing you know, when I read a lot and it excites me I would think oh god I wish there was more of this or there was a little bit you could mind this a little bit more huh that's an interesting way of thinking of it I there is just so much of it that I was able to find pretty much everything I liked I mean you know I have favorite creators i'd like to see more from them i have favorite characters i'm always happy when they turn up but there's there's always so much stuff you know there's new there's 15 20 new marvel comics coming out every week it's a it's a fire hose it is not short of the kind of thing i like even if i'm just reading three or four of them then i'm gonna find something that is my kind of thing and in terms of, and you must get asked this a lot too, because I mean, there's so many amazing superpowers. I want to ask you about your favorite superhero, but superpowers. I mean, if we, I mean, even just to address some of the world's problems like climate change or uh, social justice or just all these things, um, you know, which ones would you like to have? Oh, uh, what superpowers would I like to have? Uh... <laughs> you know, that's, that is weirdly not a thing I have thought a lot about. Um, and there are characters that I particularly love, but like, maybe my favorite one of the characters I read about in the book is Squirrel Girl. And Squirrel Girl, like her powers are that she has the proportionate speed and strength of a squirrel and she can talk to squirrels. That's not the part that I like about her. What I like about her is that her real ability is that she's unbelievably good at creative nonviolent conflict resolution. And so effectively, the Squirrel Girl series is, is one recurring joke, which is, you know, she's fighting uh, Craven the Hunter, she's fighting Galactus, she's fighting the Mole Man, she's fighting Dr. Doom, whatever. And she talks to them and reasons with them and, you know, finds common ground with them and befriends them. You know, and, you know, she will you know, kick their butt if she has to, but mostly she's more interested in coming to a mutually acceptable nonviolent solution that uh, satisfies everybody's basic needs. 
And that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would be the substance of a fantastic action comedy comic, but boy, is it ever. It makes you think twice about squirrels as well. (laughs) Not that I dream of a superpower so much, but it would be nice to not be burdened constantly by one, you know, the physical boundaries. And so I really like the way that the Marvel Universe or our comics more broadly do allow us to stretch our imaginations in, into the, right into the fantastic. And then as you say, pull it right back into the ordinary. Like at the same time, this whole meta thing going on that you can discern our real world, but then you have this super world on top. And I think it's really gives a lot to readers of all ages, but when you latch onto it when you're young is a great tool for opening our minds and imaginations and I guess also imagining seeing the world as it is and the world as it might be or you know if we're not careful what it could really become like a number of the the comics have predicted things whether it was the rise of Trump or political commentary so what are some of your more realistic or terrifying visions or just some of those comics that really made you stop and think Some of my favorite comics of the last couple of years, actually, of the period since I finished writing the book, uh, the X-Men comics that have been going on for the last two and a half years, uh, since House of X and Powers of Ten, the period where Jonathan Hickman's been kind of running the writer's room there, are absolutely fascinating. Because X-Men has always been a comic about individual and collective identity, or always at least since the 70s. It took like a decade or so to get get where it was going. mutants, which is what X-Men are, can stand in for basically any subaltern group you want them to stand in for. They don't map directly onto anything. You know, it's not like people say, you know, oh, uh, Professor X is Martin Luther King and Magneto is Malcolm X. No, 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 no. That is not, that was never meant. That's not how it works. But there is a metaphor that anything is kind of like mutants. And what's been going on for the last two and a half years is that the mutants have banded together for the purpose of nation building. They have settled on an island, an island that is itself a mutant, we won't get into that, but uh, they've settled on an island, they have built a nation, they have said, this is, this is where we live now, this is our sovereign state, and we are offering full amnesty to any mutant who wants to come and live here. Here we are, this is, we, are a, we are no longer a cultural oddity, we are a political force now. We're a nation. What does nation building look like? And that's what all of those comics, and there's like eight or 10 of them a month, are about. And it's amazing and scary and weird. And you're never sure on what side of the conflicts you are, quote, supposed to come down, which is great. <laughs> that's, that is the thing I love about it, that sort of complicated moral ambiguity that makes you have to jump in and wrestle with it all the way. And when this started, readers were like, but they're not heroes anymore. Huh, what makes you say that? Really think about that. Yeah, it it is really interesting. Um, and also it's because what's frustrating for, I think, a lot of us is politics is that things happen so slowly. You have all the intentions and you know, it's just so frustrating and it just gets, you know, that nothing happens or you fall and whack. And so it's it's a really useful tool to help us imagine what we want, because if you can't, ima- you have to imagine something in order to create it. And so, you know, I wonder, I don't know, because I know that, you know, 
uh, you know, people or some people write their thesis about, uh, you know, the different, you know, comic worlds. Um, and I wonder if um, on the university level, if that's being done, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about this, this, some of this academic analysis. And your own background as a writer, you've also written about music. It's been, you know, just you just tell us about your path to becoming a writer. Uh, so my path to becoming a writer was almost entirely accidental at first. I uh, started out majoring in chemistry in college. I switched to English halfway through because I was terrible at chemistry and got out of college, had no idea what I wanted to do, um, tried to apply to teach English overseas. That didn't work out. Uh, worked in a comic store for a few months, thought, what am I doing? Uh, moved to New York City and started working as a temporary secretary. And I was hanging out in rock clubs pretty much every night, got to be friends with a woman who worked at the music magazine. And so when I couldn't get temp work, I would go and visit her. And I noticed how badly copy edited the magazine was. So I'd just like pick up pages and start fixing them. And she said, oh, do you want to get paid to do that? Sure. Do you want to write a little for us? Yeah, I could do that. Which led to more writing and editing gigs, which led to a gig editing a music magazine. Uh, and at the music magazine, we had a terribly small budget. We couldn't afford to pay anybody. Um, like, I think we, what we paid for record review was less than what it cost to buy the CD. And so it was pretty much all like friends of mine and people I'd gone to college with. And I ended up having to write a lot of the magazine myself just to make our budget to a bunch of pseudonyms, which is how I learned I could write very quickly if I had to. Um, and if you see uh, any old issues of CMJ New Music Monthly where reviews are credited to names that you recognize as members of the Legion of Superheroes, that was me. Uh, <laughs> that led to doing some freelance writing and more and more freelance writing. And after a few years, I was getting so many freelance writing gigs that I realized I would make more money and have more fun if I just quit working at the magazine and wrote full time. And that was almost 25 years ago. And I've been freelancing ever since. For the better part of that time, I was mostly writing about music because there was a structure in place to write about music. You wrote for magazines, you wrote for newspapers, uh, you write features, reviews, whatever. And the first book I wrote was a book about a performance that James Brown gave in Harlem one night during the Cuban Missile Crisis in uh, 1962. Uh, that was one of the uh, 33 and the third series, uh, little books about classic albums. I started uh, giving some talks about music and I was writing a little bit about comics when I could. Uh, I'd started writing about comics actually when I was working at the music magazine when we had pages to fill and they said, oh, let's do a couple pages a month that will be about other media. I was like, great, I'll write about comics every month. Started doing it there. That led to opportunities to do it elsewhere. Uh, around 2001, 2002, 2003, yes, I uh, got a fellowship at the, in the National Arts Journalism Program at uh, Columbia University which was a program for quote mid-career arts journalists to spend a year working within the discipline that they normally wrote about instead of writing about it so it was great they paid us to not write for a year uh, and i decided to 
study comics making. Now, you, there's not really a comics making program at Columbia University. There are there are comics making programs at some colleges, uh, the Center for Cartoon Studies, a few other places. But I was like, okay, what's the closest thing I can do to this? So I took an introduction to drawing class. I took an art theory class that was taught by Coco Fusco, who's amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, and I took, among other things, a visual narrative class that was taught by James Seamus, who is the guy, yeah, you know James Seamus. James Seamus is incredible. He's the best teacher I've ever had. He's absolutely phenomenal. And those classes collectively just blew my mind. But it was all about trying to understand comics, not from a sort of interpretive critical perspective, but from a how do you make pictures? How do you make visual narrative? How do you draw a thing and then draw another thing and that makes a story? Now, three things really stuck out to me while I was listening to Douglas's words. The first thing that really stuck out to me was his journey towards writing. He said that he became an, quote, accidental writer. He said he was terrible at chemistry in college and eventually became an English major. I relate to this a lot because I started out college being a biology major. I took chemistry my first semester and I absolutely dreaded it. I realized that I liked writing, so I changed my major to an English major, just like Douglas Woke. The second thing that I found interesting was when he was talking specifically about the comics and how they are an, quote, interpretation from a person's hand. I don't read a lot of comics, but I could understand what he was talking about. Comics are perspectives from other people. We are able to go through someone's mind. It is like we are seeing their dreams and what they are thinking about. It is a very cool concept, and it is so interesting to see how people can come up with different stories. Like Spider-Man, how did they come up with him? It goes along with art in general as well because art is a visual way of interpreting things, which Douglas mentioned, and it can come in many forms. The third thing that I found interesting while listening to Douglas Woke was towards the beginning when he was talking about reading all the comics. He read all 27,000 comics and never once stopped or quit. He said that he, quote, read whatever he felt like reading and that he tried not to get, quote, mired down. This really stuck out to me because sometimes as a reader, it is hard to sit down and read a couple of pages. I used to be a good reader when I was younger, reading a book within an hour or two, but now I find myself struggling to read even a couple of pages. I think sometimes I get caught in the idea of wanting to start or finish a book because I feel like I have to. I force myself to read even though I don't want to, which ruins the whole experience. Douglas's words really made me understand that if I don't want to read, I don't have to. I should only read if I feel like it. If there's a book I don't want to read, I won't. This philosophy doesn't have to be strictly about reading books too, it could also go with anything. Whether it be going out when you feel pressured, or whether it be a terrible, boring episode in a TV show, or, in Douglas's case, a comic in a huge series of comics. Now, back to the interview. I am not an artist. I am absolutely terrible at drawing, but it was fascinating to do it and to learn about it and to think about it that way. 
I would always say to anyone as well, if they're not going to become an artist, but obviously you know a great deal about it just from immersing yourself in the world, is to doing it, it just increases the respect as well and the understanding. So I, I think that it's great for anyone. Maybe you're not going to become a professional musician, but just something about that gives you just a greater appreciation. So you're drawing, you're going to art theory classes and, and drawing classes and so many things. How did that make you respect the art form more? Just understanding what went into it, what representing a thing on the page could be, like what the kind of process is of not even just drawing a thing, but putting one's own hand into it, quote, style, end quote, uh, that there are so many visual ways of interpreting something and like making marks on the page to turn, turn it into something in the same way that you know, taking guitar classes completely changed the way I thought about writing about music. Like, oh, I get how this works now. And I can't say like, oh, this sentence wouldn't be in here. This, this piece of writing wouldn't be here if I didn't know how to play guitar. But more like, oh, I see. Okay. I see what's involved with this. It's not this magical thing I just have to talk about in metaphors. It is an actual technical thought process. And this is how it works. And now this kind of art opens up to me more. Yeah, I think so. I think it's almost like see you when you see like a, a I don't know, of painting or whatever, but you see the whole stuff, it all seems to be blended together, you know. But then it's kind of like going close and you can see the pontalism. You can see, oh, oh wow, this is composed, these are the atoms that it's actually composed of. It's kind of the miracle of life or the miracle of art as you you see that. What I love also about comics is, I mean, speaking as a visual artist, but who has never done comics, um, is the the point of views you know, because we all, the perspective that we all learned was just, you know, there are a lot of standard perspectives, but with comics, there's all this telescoping too. And there's a real sense of movement that you didn't get at the, you know, traditional um, art foundations. Didn't play around with that so much. Yeah. And that is the work of really a few kind of pioneering cartoonists who figured out like, how do we make this thing incredibly dynamic? How do you make it like jump out at you? And how do you do this four or six panels on a page, 20 or 22 pages an issue, banging it out over and over and keep it visually interesting and varied? Like that's, that is really, really tricky. There are a lot of artists who can do a single dynamic pinup shot of something, but constructing a page that leads the eye where it needs to go, that communicates the narrative, that gets the mood across in everything. You know, Chris Claremont, who wrote X-Men for many years, um, he was one of the people who used what's called the Marvel style of writing. This is a thing that was more or less invented by Stan Lee as a time-saving device. And the way that Stan Lee worked with artists is famously that he would never write a full script for them. He would never say, this is what happens in panel one, this is what happens in panel two he would give them a little plot breakdown or just write a few pages of like, here's what happens in the story. You decide how to show it or just have a conversation with them. Or in many cases, as with like Jack Kirby and, and Steve Ditko, just leave it up to them all together or say like, we roughly want to have this thing happen, this issue, you go deal with it. Uh, now, is that 
writing? Maybe. One of the sources of the conflict between Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, who co-created an awful lot of 60s Marvel, is that they both believed they were writing the story. There's an amazing book uh, called Lee and Kirby Stuff Said, which is uh, all the extant interviews with either of them where they're talking about their creative process. For Lee, writing meant choosing the particular words that you read on the page. For Kirby, writing meant constructing the narrative, you know, deciding what's going to happen and how it is shown. And the rest was just like filling in the words. That wasn't writing to him. So both of them believed they were writing the comics and that the other one wasn't. And they were both right by their own, <laughs> by their own definitions of it, which is super interesting. So uh, where I was going with this is that Chris Claremont, when he was writing X-Men, he would write plots and he would write detailed plots. He would detail what was happening in the story and more importantly, what the psychological effect of what was happening in the story was supposed to be, what everybody was feeling, how everybody was reacting. And he would leave it to the artist to figure out how to show all that. He would not call shots. He would not say, you know, we're going to do a straightforward thing here. We're going to show the background here. He's just like, here's what happens. You show me how it happens, and then I'll put in the words. It's interesting, the, the different approaches. I mean, some people think, yeah, that some writers have told me that, like, they don't write they're not right they write structures like what you're saying and that is the words and i guess as you say that there's so many different ways to to read comics that you know one reader will have that experience and another reader will have the other one and 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 so that it's important to serve them both and so you know speak a little bit about these um I guess what you call them godfathers of comics and you know they're they're different style or they're different quirks or you know you know how you how you know their fingerprints on it oh yeah i mean there are there are certain artists especially well actually at all times in the history of comics like you can tell their styles on something but talking specifically about marvel in the 60s jack kirby is the one who is the great godfather of everything there's there's an issue from about uh 15 years ago where the Fantastic Four meet God and he's Jack Kirby at his drawing table. Uh, and Kirby was unbelievably fast and everything is incredibly dynamic. Everything is just exploding off the page. Everything just like every single moment, every motion of it is thrilling and huge and in your face. And there's this ceaseless visual inventiveness to it. Like there's a new visual idea, there's a new look, there's a new way of showing something on pretty much every page. He, by the mid 60s, he even started doing collage pages where he would like, literally collage together things and maybe add a few drawn figures to the top of them. But you know, there's this immense scale to what he's doing. Steve Ditko is the other one of the great visual godfathers of Marvel and his stuff is much more reserved, is much more pulled back. Um, he communicates incredibly well through body language. If you look at any of the first 30 or so issues of Amazing Spider-Man, you do not have to read a single word on them to tell exactly what is happening in every scene because what the characters are doing and how they're posed is so effective at communicating that. He was also the co-creator of Doctor Strange and the landscape in which Doctor Strange operates is 
purely alien. It is like nothing that exists in the physical world as we know it. And the language that he invented for that otherness has completely stuck around. I mean, when people are drawing something that's supposed to represent something alien and other, they will most often go to some of the visual devices that Steve Ditko dreamed up because they work so well. Yeah, that amazing uh, visual inventiveness, and and I was wondering what you feel when what were you felt when the um, the first Matrix films came out? I mean, I kind of mainstreamed in a way that an appreciation for this kind of comic world as well. Yeah, I mean the the uh, the Matrix movies clearly draw on comics. I mean the Star Wars movies draw on comics too. I mean there's there's so much from. Kirby and from you know, Bern Hogarth and from a bunch of other cartoonists in those. Uh, people who grew up on mass entertainment internalize it and they, they turn it into other kinds of ent entertainment. There's imagery from Matrix movies and from other movies that makes into comics. There's actually, here's a great example. In the Iron Man movies, in the first Iron Man movie, there's the problem that you've got, you know, Robert Downey Jr., who's a significant star, who's wearing an outfit that has a mask that completely obscures his face. How are you going to get into face act? Well, the solution that the director of that movie came up with was we do a cutaway. We show the inside of his helmet. We show his face with a bunch of like little laser projections on it to indicate that he's getting all sort of data on the inside of the mask and we can show his face and we're just somehow seeing his face inside the mask. And that is a brilliant visual device and as soon as that movie comes out, you start seeing that in Iron Man comics. You start seeing that as like, now we can show this character's face and let them emote on the panel. Great. You can never do that before. Going back to Spider-Man for a moment, there is a famous, famous sequence in an early issue of Spider-Man where Spider-Man is being crushed under this enormous weight. It's a gigantic metal object that's crushing him and there's water dripping around him and He's, he feels like everything is lost and he's just thinking of everyone who's depending on him and he finds the strength to like lift this heavy object off and throw it off him. That is a sequence that has been visually homaged dozens of times. There's callbacks to it in the comics, there's callbacks to it in the Spider-Man movies, there's a little callback to it in the Spider-Man video game that came out a couple of years ago. And it's not a moment that people who are not comics people know about but it is iconically that character. And it is a character who is, again, wearing a full face mask. You cannot see anything that is going on on his face. He's just got the spider mask on. But Ditko was so good at visual language and body language that it's this four page long sequence of this character going through this fantastically huge range of emotions that are visually communicated while his face is covered and he's being crushed under a heavy thing. For that reason, I also enjoy watching videos of animals and which we see with the superheroes is that they're they're hybrids, right? What animals communicate and what we communicate, although sometimes we don't realize it, is so much, as you say, with the body language. And it makes me think about what the reading about them fulfills is, is it sometimes like a longing to reclaim our animal selves or, you know, a lost past or something, you know, this is so this dynamism that animals have this natural grace and power. That's one right there. You know, you can read them as soap opera. You can read them as like the excitement of seeing 
ideological conflicts turned into physical conflicts. You can read them, as I said, for costume design. You can you can read them, you know, some people who've been reading comics for a long time are like, it's like reading the newspaper. I just want to see what's going on with that with Batman. Something's going on with him this week. We'll find out what. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm in in Paris, so we have a we have a, you know there's a big uh, affection for comics as well, and and in, and in almost an academic level as well. I I feel, and and I'm wondering, you know, with your great you know knowledge now of the whole uh, Marvel universe. Uh, are you called in to be a consultant sometimes? Because it's, it's hard to keep track of all that. And I'm sure, I'm sure that they, the writers themselves was on there. I, I have not done any consulting as such about these comics. I've, you know, no, that, that's, I, I have no official affiliation with Marvel. I just read them. I am off to, I, this, this is a thing that I did Excuse me. This is a thing on my that I did on my own as independent research. Um, oh yeah, I know that you're not like yeah. to promote. <laughs> Marvel no, no. promotes itself, but yeah. you know, I think it would be very handy to have on staff. You just say in the writers' room, someone to say, well, you know, you already covered that. That's already, but <laughs> you have to like. There's this other thing that you have to. You know, I can see I can see that being counterproductive too. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there is always the risk of telling stories about stories. Uh, there is always the risk of getting caught up in minutia instead of seeing the big picture of like the thing that communicates. And so as you, uh, you know, clearly enjoy at comics so much, um, does, you know, coming, you know, sometimes I find this too, uh, you know, coming back to, I just say normal fiction, you know, realism, you know, does that ever like, this is just not juicy. I can't, can't, can't put your head back into it. Oh no. I mean, once I finished the book, I was like, okay, there's a stack of prose that has been piling up on my bedstand for a real long time. It is time to start getting into that. And then of course that week I went to the comic store. I was like, oh, there's a new issue of Hellions. I should pick that up. But, uh, but also, you know, there's different kinds of stories. There's different kinds of comic stories. Um, I don't think superhero comics are the best or the most important kind of story that comics does or can do. It is a kind that's real interesting to me, but it is a kind. There's lots and lots of other different kinds of comics, of stories, of media. You know, I read them for what they are, but I read other things for what they are too. And you talked about, you know, this exploration, this metaphor of um, mutants, of uh, superheroes. And, you know, I'm curious about, you know, it, they're great also for exploring the dark side and monsters. Um, you know, I mean, what, why, do, why do you feel we're drawn to reading about monsters? Is it because we're afraid that inside us is also a monster? Or <laughs> what, you know, what fascinates you about those aspects? Monst monsters are exciting, right? Like monsters are, they're fun to look at. They're scary. They give you that kind of little frisson. Um, what a monster is changes. And I should clarify this thing I, I mentioned in the book, which is that before Marvel published superhero comics, starting in 61, 62, 63, they published a bunch of different other kinds of comics. But the thing they published more of than anything else was two kinds of comics. Number one was monster comics, 
monsters and science fiction and like horror. Like they had tales of suspense, tales to astonish, strange tales, journey into mystery, amazing adventures. These were the series that subsequently like evolved into Thor and Iron Man and Captain America and whatever else. But they were monster comic anthologies. That was one kind of thing they did. The other kind of thing they did was stories about teenage girls and young professional women. Kathy the Teenage Tornado, Patsy Walker, Hel- you know, Patsy Walker, uh, America's Sweetheart, Patsy and Hebe, Millie the Model, uh, my very favorite, Linda Carter, Student Nurse. Linda Carter, Student, like, this was a comic about the student nurse that started two months before Fantastic Four. And Kathy the Teenage Tornado and Linda Carter, Student Nurse, and Millie the Model, like, they were part of the first crossover, the first time that a story from one of these comics kind of jumped over into another one way before the superheroes started doing it. But so monsters, monsters are fun to look at. They are always something that is other. They are something that is scary. They are something that you have to protect your family from. In 1960, 1961, 1959, that is so much about the Cold War. It is so much about atomic terror. It is so much about everything that we culturally are scared of. Those monsters stick around the Marvel story. They never totally leave. They leave for a little while, but then they come back. But when they come back by now, they're not scary anymore. Groot, the tree monster from Guard Galaxy, he shows up in 1960. In a, like he's in a monster comic. It's Groot, the thing from Planet X. I am Groot. Fear me, humans. He's a tree monster. He's defeated by termites. But he's this alien thing that looks like a familiar thing. That's what we're terrified of in 1960. Things that look like us but aren't really us. We're not quite so scared of that in the same way now. Well, what scares you, I mean, in the real world? I mean, in our world, in our less juicy world here. Uh, what scares me in the real world? You know, politics, the rise of fascism, that's real scary. The thought of institutionally appro- approved and state-approved violence, that's terrifying. I mean, we're not really seeing any COVID comics yet. Give it a couple of years. Like, you know, too soon. There are lots of older comics about, oh, no, it's a disease. And some of them are like, you know, okay, here's our here's our AIDS analog. And some of them are just like, okay, diseases are scary. What people are living through right now is not instant. It is slow grind terror. It is boiling frog terror. It is the thing that creeps up on you. I'm really curious to see the way that gets reflected in pop culture stories three, four, five years down the line. It's interesting how they can be teaching tools. And I wonder with another parallel medium, like video games, we know that like in the military, video games are kind of simulations are used to, you know, help train and and these kind of things. It's interesting to reflect how portrayals of violence can influence people. In the comic world, I always feel that there is a kind of morality or an empowering. I think in a lot of ways, I think there are certain kinds of fantasy violence that are are fun and interesting and cathartic to watch. My very favorite giant body of comics work is not Marvel. It's not DC either. It is Dread. It's the series that's been run, Judge Dread, series that's been running in England for 45 years weekly. And 
for its first five years or so, five, ten years, Judge Dredd is a fantasy of political violence with no consequences. And then the consequences start happening and never, ever stop. And for the last 35 years, it has been about the pigeons coming home to home to roost. It has been about like, okay, you have this fascist state with its super empowered police force, and it has just made matters so much worse. And the cascading effects of the violence and the resentment it has bred have <clears throat> made things vastly, vastly more horrible than if that had never come into play in the first place, which is an amazing long game for a 45-year long, long story to play. And you know, there is one writer who has been at least involved with it since the beginning, kind of overseeing so. And a guy named John Wagner, who's an, an absolutely incredible comics writer who's been playing the long game. Like there, uh, he will introduce a plot thread and it'll pay off 20 years down the line. And so I, I, I love that. There is this web that brings together this whole story, but it wasn't always intended, but it just seemed to, it's kind of coalesced over time in different authors. Yeah. Um, it grew like the Marvel story was not conceived of as a single story and as a single monolithic thing that all fit together. It was being made in the early days by a very few people. It was Stanley and Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby and Don Heck and maybe half a dozen other people tops. And when you have that few people like, oh, you know, it'll be fun if, you know, for the first issue of this new Spider-Man book, he swings by and meets the Fantastic Four. Great. They live in the same New York. And then characters kept showing up in each other's stories. And then plot threads from one started showing up in another one. And then it kind of became clear that it was all one big story being made up by a small group of people that then got not that small, that then got very large. But what it's turned into is this kind of creative collaboration, sometimes between people working very closely, closely together in the same room, and sometimes by people who are separated by decades and continents working with each other. That's, there's nothing else like that. As you say, people from different continents um, collaborating, what do the different explorations in different parts of the world, like how is that a mirror onto their society and onto ours, their interpretation of our society? And That's a good question. I mean, the writers, the people who are writing the stories are mostly American or British. And it is a very American-centric and very New York-centric take on the world. Uh, it is published by a company that has been based in New York City since the beginning. And the, uh, I'm going to correct a little misconception that a lot of people have here. Uh, Stanley is sometimes quoted as saying that the Marvel Universe is the world outside your window. I don't think he ever said that. Uh, that was actually a slogan for a line called the New Universe that uh, was introduced in the mid-80s that Jim Shooter came up with. But it's come to stick. Like, it is mis misattributed to Stan Lee because it fits. The world that these characters in is a specific world, and it's very much the world that you and I live in, just a more exciting and weirder version of that world. That's true. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about that. And then 
the, the, the Marvel world has given us so much to think about, about our own society now, and also about, you know, the future, the, the f- futures, you know, we have choices. And that's important to be able to consider those futures um, without having to experience them, um, because we can mold our own. Uh, so as you think about the future, education, the environment, technology, all these things that are discussed uh, in such a depth in the Marvel universe, um, and our current system systems, uh, societal problems. Uh, what are your hopes? What would you, what are some of the life lessons that were important to you, teachers important to you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Wow, that's big. Um, I like the idea that your actions in the world can be motivated by both idealism and realism about how to achieve those ideals. I like the idea that morality is not simple. There's this idea that like there's the heroes and there's the villains and you can easily tell who's who. And that's not so true as it used to be and in comics. And that's special and that is meaningful. Um, one thing that is interesting about the Marvel story is there's basically nobody who's just a bad guy to be a bad guy everyone has their reasons almost everyone is capable of redemption in some way even the worst of the worst are capable of tremendous heroism and tremendous idealism and genuinely wanting to heal the world and make it a better place i think communicating what what those ideals are and how they can change and need to change as time passes is really special. And I think that addressing those through stories, through things where there's not necessarily a one-to-one meaning, like this is, this is, not, this is not a parable, this is not you know, something where you know, character X stands for concept Y in always exactly the same way. That's important, that things can shift that things can be different, that a better world is possible, and that you can make it so that your abilities may be things that you work very hard for for a very long time, or they may come to you. Your body may be transformed in ways that are wonderful or are horrible, and you can make something of it. Yeah, that's a really... um... That just shows the kind of depth that you can find um, in in that Marvel world, but it gives us a a lot to think about. And yes, another world is possible. And um, we have only, we are only limited by our imagination and our capacity to apply ourselves to it. So thank you, Douglas Woke, for inviting us into your imaginative world, sharing your insights about all of the Marvels, the art of comics, the future and society. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks so much, Mia. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Megan Hagenbarth. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. 
Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.